Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Brian Raftery just wrote a really interesting book. He's a film writer. You might have seen him in GQ or Wired or Rolling Stone. Anyway, he wrote this book. He called it Best Movie Year Ever. And in the book's 300 pages, Brian makes the case that one of the most interesting and memorable years in cinema history wasn't 1939 or 1974. It was 1999. Now, before you look at your phone and start looking up the movies that came out in 1999, I'll list off a few right now. Office Space, Three Kings, Rushmore, Being John Malkovich, Eyes Wide Shut, Magnolia, The Matrix. Anyway, I could, I, I could do that for quite a while. You get the point. There were a lot of groundbreaking and influential movies. The book is meticulously researched. It has interviews with pretty much every person who was making movies back then. Brian not only talks about the movies themselves, but the careers that those movies launched, the way the studios marketed them, and the impact they've had 20 years later. Like, take Blair Witch Project. It was a found-footage horror movie, and it paved the way for dozens and dozens and dozens that came in its wake. It was marketed mostly online in a campaign that blurred the lines between the film and real life. The filmmakers really are missing, the poster said. The footage really is all we have from them. That had never been done before. And, of course, the film features one of the most iconic scenes ever— We see a close-up of the main character's face holding the camera herself late at night in the Maryland woods. I insisted on everything. I insisted that we weren't lost. I insisted that we keep going. I insisted that we walk south. Everything had to be my way. And this is where we've ended up. And it's all because of me that we're here now. Hungry and cold and hunted. Brian Raftery, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Jesse. Thanks for having me. So there's this theory that you will never like any music <laughs> more than the music that came out your senior year of high school. Right. Like the, the, the slow song that you danced to at senior prom is locked in forever as the greatest song ever recorded. Sure, yeah. For almost 20 years now, I've been reasonably confident that the reason I like so many movies that came out in 1999 is because I was a senior in high school. Oh, such a good year to watch all these. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I am so grateful to you for writing a book <laughs> to suggest that it's not just that I was a teenager, <laughs> that actually people exactly my age are just special. <laughs> Well, you are very special in that age, but you're not alone. I mean, I think in the last couple of years, especially this year, has started popping up more and more, I think, because some of these movies just haven't gone away. And in fact, they're kind of bigger now. I mean, something like Office Space or Election or Being John Malkovich or even Fight Club were not box office movies. And now they're just, if you go online, I mean, how many times do you see a Matrix meme once a week or a reference or something about Fight Club or someone quotes something or you look at the 2016 election and you're like, this feels like a movie I saw back in 1999. Um, so it's certainly, it's not just, I mean, I was, a, I'm only a little bit older than you, but 
this year was very special for me because I graduated college this year and I moved to New York and could go to these things called screening rooms, which was this mind-blowing experience if you're a movie fan to go see a movie in like a professional New York theater. So I saw a lot of these that year. And I was a little biased because I thought it was like, life is great. The late 90s are great. Look where I am at this place in my world. But looking back 20 years later, these movies were, no matter when they would have come out, these would have been pretty special movies, I think. So what were the conditions that made 1999 a special year for movies? There are a few of them, and some of them are kind of happening now again in a weird way. But one thing that I kind of never really realized until I started working on this was that the mid to late 90s, even though we have a lot of 90s nostalgia now, for the big studios were not a particularly great time. Um, a lot of the franchises were starting to have these kind of wonky entries like Alien Resurrection or the last Lethal Weapon movie, and they were kind of running out of ideas, the big studios. And meanwhile, at the same time, you have this amazing explosion of independent filmmakers in that decade, like David O. Russell or Wes Anderson or Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, and so there was this kind of strange divide where the big studios are making literally the odd couple too. Like a lot of these movies and like the Avengers, the TV version of the Avengers, they did this huge remake of and Batman and Robin. So the studios are having these kind of problems connecting and they're doing a lot of reboots, a lot of franchise movies, whereas all of the really cool cultural momentum is happening in a lot of ways with Miramax, with New Line, and then much smaller studios like that. And they just wound up weirdly through a bunch of coincidences just kind of coming together. I think they realized they sort of needed each other. The big studios had movie stars and big budgets, and the independent movies had these really remarkable writer-directors. Let's start by talking about a movie that was uh, a big idea but a very small film that turned out to be uh, an, a huge enduring hit, and that's The Blair Witch Project. Yeah. Where did this movie come from? Because these days, half of the movies in movie theaters are some kind of knockoff of The Blair Witch Project. But um, back then, it, I mean, I remember it was completely inexplicable. Yeah, it felt like it came out of nowhere. I mean, Blair Witch is sort of, to me, it's the ultimate Sundance movie because obviously it came out of Sundance that year and it was a hit, but I feel like it's sort not of... Not Paris, Texas? Not been yet. It's, it's, I feel like in the late, you know, another thing, as I mentioned, those, they had this indie movement, but at the same time, by the late 90s, the indie movement had kind of been co-opted a little bit. You had a lot of kind of pretty mad-inducing Miramax movies. And I think there was sort of a sense that the indie movement was kind of losing a little bit. It had a lot a lot of money being pumped into it. So in the mid-'90s, you have these two Florida college students, you know, Ed Sanchez and Dan Merrick, and they're like, what happened to good horror movies? What if we just did this simple idea? And they spent a couple of years putting the fun. I mean, they really did it in a very old-school way. They went and raised money. They showed off a reel to investors. They got these actors to improvise. They put them in the woods for more than a week. And they spend forever editing it and trying to bring it down. And then they put it to Sundance and everyone's like, well, is this real? Are these kids dead? And it just became this sort of really interesting word of mouth phenomenon starting in January. And by the time it came out in July, I think a lot of people such as myself knew it wasn't real, but it was so fun to pretend that this movie was something it wasn't, you know, that it was completely, maybe it was real. Maybe it was fun to talk about. It was fun to speculate online. So you had the internet at that point colliding with indie movie making and it was kind of remarkable. And I think The Blair Witch is, when I interview people for the book, some of the older actors and filmmakers I talked to were a little dismissive of that movie. But you were in high school, I was out of college, and I was totally like, 
I knew what they were going for. I'd been raised on that chop it up visual language. I knew th- what those quick cuts. I didn't need too much storytelling set up. And I recognized those kids. I'm like, these kids are my age. Uh, and that movie was super terrifying. I saw in a screening room and I was gripping. I just, I'm not kidding. I was gripping the side of this armrest of this chair. And I knew it was fake. Um, but it was just so effectively done. And that's why I took off that summer. And I think people forget how big it was. I mean, it just loomed the entire summer long. Office Space uh, was one of my favorite movies of the year. And I I once interviewed Mike Judge uh, a few years ago, and he talked about how his experience at a software company in the 80s informed the film. And that's something that you get into in the book a little bit. The way that while Office Space came out in 1999, what it really feels like is kind of the flip side of a coin to 80s career movies, yeah. you know, 9 to 5 or something yeah, like that, yeah. where, like, there's a lot of, like... Uh, I mean, 9 to 5 is a really fun movie. I'm not yeah. putting down no, 9 no, to 5. I know, yeah. <laughs> but, like, uh, you know, there's a lot of, like, zippy achieving mm-hmm. um, and uh, fun hijinks in that it is, like, almost completely bereft of fun hygiene. Yes, it's totally, it's a joy. I mean, and it's so funny those 80s movies, it's like, you know, when I was young, I loved The Secret of My Success. I really loved Working Girl as a kid, which is a strange movie for like a nine-year-old to be like, I love Working Girl. But well, they, most nine-year-olds are pretty into Mike Nichols. I guess, yeah, you're going through, you're going through the, the Nichols oeuvre. Yeah. Um, but, you know, those movies were really like, it made New York City and working in an office and being on the corporate ladder seem like, well, this is what you do. Like, this is an exciting way to live. And then, you know, Office Space and Office space is so depressing about office life. And I'd had a little bit of that at that point. I I attempt and done some cubicle jobs and I had seen the like, oh boy, this is not fun. And this is like, there's, you know, you can get stuck on this track forever. But, you know, Mike Judge himself thought that maybe he was too late. But I think that movie is only kind of getting, it's just the movie. I think the reason why that movie needed so long is because I think five, 10 years afterward, we all started looking around being like, wait, why are we working for these big giant companies that do not care about us at all and are, we're not spending time with people we want to be with or doing what we want to do. And that movie, that movie is a dark movie. I mean, that movie is basically the comedy version of Fight Club. It's like, yeah, walk away from everything you love, shed your identity, and you'll find some sort of, you know, you'll find yourself in some way. But it's, Office Space is hilarious, but it's also very bleak in some ways. Let's hear a little bit from Office Space. So Peter, who's Ron Livingston, the star, is an office drone who gets uh, basically hypnotized into being more chill in this part of the movie. And uh, he's decided, because he is so chill, to just stop going to work. (laughs) And he gets called in and meets with this team of corporate consultants who are called the Bobs. Would you walk us through a typical day for you? Yeah. Great. Well, I generally come in at least 15 minutes late. Uh... I use the side door, that way Lumber can't see me. <laughs> and uh, after that, I just sort of space out for about an hour. Uh, space out? Yeah, I just stare at my desk. But it looks like I'm working. I do that for uh, probably another hour after lunch, too. I'd say in a given week, I probably only do about 15 minutes of real, actual work. Uh, Peter, would you? Be a good sport and indulge us and just tell us a little more. Oh, yeah. Let me tell you something about TPS reports. Uh. 
I love the Hawaiian uh, background of the music in that. It really makes it. <laughs> There's a great anecdote in the book uh, that I think came from Mike Judge of going to a um, of going to a focus group where he is quite confident that the woman from the studio running the focus group is trying to get everyone to say <laughs> that they shouldn't have rap music in right, the movie. Yeah. <laughs> And the rap music makes all those scenes. I mean, it is such a perfect soundtrack for. It. But yeah, he, they had a focus group, and you know, he he basically said like, look, these these mall rat kids kind of saved, <laughs> kind of saved the soundtrack for Office Space. I mean, and you can't really. It's very you know, a lot of these movies were mismarketed or maybe not always handled well by the studio. And it's very easy to look back and go, well, I understand why maybe they didn't know what to do with Office Space. But it's so funny to me because the music, when you think of that score and you think of like the the gangster rap, I mean, it totally gets that's it's those guys are just imagining they have this fantasy life that they have their own soundtrack for and this kind of badass version of themselves which is kind of like you know again it's sort of like what happens with fight club a little bit kind of what happens with matrix it's kind of this imagined sort of like better version of themselves that's kind of living in their own fantasy in a way you know the matrix wound up being kind of a relatively low cost risk back then it's not uh, you know nowadays it would be a 200 million dollar budget but you know, they got Keanu Reeves, who was in a weird place back then. He'd had, he has one of the weirdest careers ever because Speed is this huge hit. Turn, he does My Own Private Idaho and Bill and Ted. Then he does Speed. And then after Speed, he made a lot of really um, bad movies and one great bad movie, which is uh, Devil's Advocate, which I love. And so they put him, you know, they put him in the science That's fiction. one where he's a lawyer who yes. is arguing a case against the devil. Well, I don't want to spoil it, but the devil is actually his father. Okay. And Al Pacino plays the plays Satan and there's it's the most hammiest uh, Al Pacino you'll ever see really even even for now Al Pacino but for whatever reason I mean they gave the Wachowskis tons of I think maybe because they didn't under some people didn't understand the script of Warner Brothers or were just sort of like okay this is this weird sci-fi thing we're doing they cycled through a bunch of big stars you know they tried to get Will Smith to do it they talked to Brad Pitt they tried to get Sandra Bullock to, to play Neo at one point because they couldn't get anyone to commit to it and they get this guy who's perfect for it. I mean, he's perfect as Neo. He's the perfect blank slate to play this character who's basically thrust into the real world and has to decide whether he wants to stay there or not. And he looks really cool with a big duster and uh, and he can basically sort of fly off walls. And it's – I mean, it's a remarkably crazy movie. And the ideas in it and the fact that it's all packed in this big studio film, it seems so unlikely to ever get made today. The other huge – Science fiction or space opera, if you prefer, <laughs> film of 1999 was the first Star Wars prequel, The Phantom Menace. Qui-Gon believed in him. The chosen one, the boy may be. Nevertheless, grave danger, I fear, in his training. Master Yoda, I gave Qui-Gon my word. I will train Anakin. <sighs> Without the approval of the council, if I must. Qui-Gon's defiance, I sense in you. Need that you do not. Agree with you, the council does. Your apprentice, Skywalker, will be. <laughs> so weird to hear those Yoda grunts without the visual. You're just like, <laughs> yeah. it's a strange noise. <laughs> yeah. It's also it's also a vivid memory of, of how much of the film is things like agree with you, the council does. Oh, boy. But yeah. I – so I am not a first-generation Star Wars fan. Mm -hmm. I'm a little bit too young to have seen any of them in the movie theaters when they came out. But I, I saw them when they were 
re-released in the late 80s at a movie theater near my house. So I was a young kid. I was the right age to be like totally transported sure, by them. Yeah. And, and, you know, by the early to mid-1990s when I was in middle school, that was the thing to mm-hmm. be a nerd about if you yeah. were going to be a nerd. And it's a great thing. I think the those th- first three Star Wars movies are really wonderful movies. Um I could not have been more excited mm. about – well, I could have been more excited about this movie. <laughs> I remember how excited some other people I knew were. But uh, I was very excited ab- about this movie. And I remember watching it and just being utterly baffled that that was what they – not like angry the way some people were, but just like, so that's what we 15 years mm. or whatever wrought – yeah, it was – I mean, I was a huge Star Wars fan. I could not wait for this movie. I mean, when they put the first trailer online, I was like, you know, watching this QuickTime file refresh for like 18 minutes just to get a first look at it. And I got to go – it was the first press screening I ever went to was for this movie and I could not – I mean, I, I remember being in line and being like, they're going to find out I'm just an intern. Like, they're going to kick me out of the line. And I remember coming home and telling my parents and I was like – I think this one character makes a fart joke at one point. Like there's a Jar Jar Binks sort of thing in it. And I was totally baffled. And I went to – I saw it five times in the theater that summer, maybe four times, trying to like it. And it was – I think people forget now because we've had all these other big Star Wars movies. But that really was – if you grew up with those movies, even if you were not the first generation, it's like you could not wait for that movie. It, was, it, sh- it overshadowed every other movie coming out that year just in the months leading up to it. What are the best things about it? Well, especially now, uh, there are a couple things about The Phantom Menace I really genuinely still love. Um, I do think the Darth Maul lightsaber scene is awesome. It's super cool. It's like the John Williams score is the coolest thing he's done. Um, I think what's made it so interesting now, and I had to rewatch all these movies a lot in the last couple of years while working on the book. When you look at the new Star Wars prequels, they're very much devoted to we found the original panels from the Death Star. We've recreated them. And the aesthetic is very much that sort of those first three films. And I kind of admire in Phantom Menace where he's just saying, you know what, I am not going to give the easy fan stuff that you all – I'm not going to show you an X-Wing right away that you recognize. He's trying to build new worlds. He's really doing interesting stuff with technology. I just think that it's it's the most maximalized – it's the most maximalist Star Wars movie at a time when the technology was not ready to support it. More with Brian Raftery in just a bit. When we come back from a quick break, which movie from 1999 won the Best Picture Oscar? Do you remember? Here's a hint. It definitely wasn't the best movie from 1999. Sorry, Sam Mendes. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Summer movie season is here and Pop Culture Happy Hour has you covered. For a guide through the blockbusters you know about and the surprise bright spots you might not, we'll tell you what we are looking forward to, what we're secretly dreading, and what might sneak up on us. Listen now and subscribe. I listen to reading glasses because Bria and Mallory have great tips. You're a comics reader and you want to use a library-connected app, you can try out Hoopla. I listen for the author interviews. I'm mad at myself that I waited as long as I did to start reading Joan Didion. They give me reading advice I didn't even know I needed. If you go in person to an event and go up to an author or a filmmaker or anybody and tell them what they you don't like about their work, you're a trash baby. I, look, I understand you didn't like Heroes Season 3. That's fine. I like. I don't... <laughs> actually need to know that information i'm bria grant and i'm mallory o'mara we're reading glasses and we solve all your bookish problems every thursday on maximum fun welcome back to bullseye i'm jesse thorne here with me now brian raftery he's a writer who's appeared in esquire wired and many more his new book is called best movie year ever 
how 1999 blew up the big screen. Let's talk about a few movies from 1999 that uh, I love pretty unequivocally. Why don't we start with Three Kings? Mm. Now, I I have to say, we have a sister show here on our network called Friendly Fire, which covers war movies from a pretty sophisticated perspective. Yeah. and. Opinions were mixed on Three Kings in the in a contemporary context, and I haven't seen Three Kings, uh, you know, since I was a teenager or or, or in my early twenties, maybe. But Three Kings is uh, a movie that was directed by David O. Russell, and is a movie that is so strange in its conception. It is hard to imagine that they could have gotten tens of millions of dollars to make it with movie stars. Mm. It is a very visceral and serious heist comedy set in the war in the Persian Gulf. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like a list of things so weird. Right. <laughs> like if it was two or three of, I think I just listed four things, you know, it would still be kind of surprising that it was a big movie. Yeah. Uh, how was it possible that David O. Russell convinced a studio, a big studio, to give him tens of millions of dollars to make this weird, intense movie that is both kind of intensely not glib and weirdly glib about the horror of war at the same time. Yeah, and I think it's it's a it's a remarkable movie. And I think it's when I rewatched all these films, I was sort of struck by how when I keep making sort of top five, top ten in my list, at certain points, Three Kings was like number two, number three. It's It holds up remarkably well, I think, because they don't make these kind of movies anymore. Um, but David O. Russell was an indie filmmaker, and he'd had Flirting with Disaster, which had been, you know, a critical hit and made some money. And Warner Brothers was like, hey, we want to get into business with filmmakers like you. Um, and I think... The one thing he, I mean, there was a lot of resistance toward the movie because they just had some problems with another movie set in the middle or dealing with Middle East politics, um, executive decision with Kurt Russell, which is, by the way, a pretty great movie because Steven Seagal dies in the first twenty minutes. Which again, spoiler for old movies, but, um, but you know, he he had George Clooney and George Clooney desperately wanted to do this movie. No one really thought of George Clooney at the time they were setting this movie up as a movie star. Um, he was on ER, which was the biggest show aside from Friends, and. ER was a Warner Brothers produced uh, TV show, and George Clooney literally wrote a letter yeah. to David O. Russell yeah, like, begging, please, to be in the put film. me in this movie. I mean, I think he knew because at that point, you know, Out of Sight was either finishing filming or was maybe being edited. You know, and Out of Sight is definitely the movie where everyone went, "Oh, George Clooney is like really could be this huge, great movie star if you get him with the right director and right material." He signed it, George Clooney, TV star. Yeah, exactly. I mean. And I think that helped a lot. And I also think it was, you know, again, this was Warner Brothers, and they were a studio that did take a lot of risks in the 90s. I mean, they were the ones who made The Avengers, the you know, the TV remake, and they made Batman and Robin. But they would also back kind of interesting filmmakers and visions if they could keep it within a certain budget. And I think having Clooney, they were like, you know what, this this movie is semi-dangerous, but this is a, this guy's a big star. They gave David O. Russell not only George Clooney, but they gave him Ice Cube, who no one really thought of. I mean, he'd been in Friday and he'd been in Boys in the Hood. But, you know, Ice Cube is this military guy who's a huge emotional heart of the movie. Um, and they had Mark Wahlberg, who, you know, your your favorite, um, who hadn't been tested in a role like this. And they had Spike Jones, who David O. Russell kind of had to really fight to get in the movie because no one knew who Spike Jones was. And if you did know him, you didn't know him as an actor. And he's playing this kind of weaselly, scrawny, you know, nasally ding-dong who just wants to shoot people. I think this guy has a weapon! 
Yeah, he does! Whoa! Dang. Didn't think I'd get to see anybody shot in this war. And that movie is... Of all, a lot of movies that year, I think that movie is really kind of calling out the last 10 years of violence and sort of sort of showing what violence had become, which is like this generation that had been raised on video games and warfare. And it took the country to task in a way that I don't think a studio movie really has since in a big way, in a, in a sp- war-specific way like that. Let's talk about Rushmore. Sure. Uh, I will admit two things. Rushmore has made my favorite movie. Mm-hmm. And I auditioned for Rushmore and really? didn't, didn't get it. But the reason... Wait, which role? Which role did you audition for? For Max. For, for Max, sure. really? Because yeah. I was 16 at the time, which was what they were looking for. Well, I figured either that or the Mason Gamble role or one of the high school... So yeah. did you go to one of these big cattle calls? They came, they came to my high school. I went okay. to an arts high school, so they came to my high school. And my audition consisted of uh, hearing that they were casting a Bill Murray movie. <laughs> I thought Bill Murray was super lame. I was very wrong about it, but mm. I was just just too young to have remembered his great movies, and it was all like Operation Dumbo Drop or whatever. I had not yet seen um, The Man Who Knew Too Little, mm. his very funny Hitchcock parody, yeah. or uh, any of his quality later work. Quick Change, very underrated Bill Murray <laughs> movie. Love my favorite movies. Yeah, absolutely love Quick Change. Uh, but I, I just had this vague feeling about him and like Chevy Chase, that there were like these guys, I didn't understand why anyone liked them. You're probably right about Chevy Chase at that point. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I walked into Larger Than Life is the name. Larger of it. Than Life. That's right. Okay. I walked into the audition. They're like, no, too tall. Sorry. Oh, really? Yeah. But, you know, like, luckily, luckily I didn't get it. Yeah. Because of how spectacularly good Jason Schwartzman in it is, is in it, whether or not he got it because of nepotism. He Who cares? He's so good. At a party. He's so good. He's a, he's a very sweet man, yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, this is a movie about M- Max Fisher, uh, a teenager who goes to a very fancy private school that is m- modeled after and shot in the fancy private school that Wes Anderson mm-hmm. went to in the Houston area yeah. in Texas. And Bill Murray, who's like a millionaire industrialist who came from nothing and uh, hates his own children and just wants somebody who gets it around to be his protege, basically. They both fall in love with the same teacher. Um, and it doesn't really go very well for either of them. Right. Um, so this is a scene from the movie. Uh, and I have to say, I went to this fancy private middle school. And I was a, I was very, like, there, I, there's a reason Marshmore is my favorite movie. Basically. Mm. <laughs> I was also president of 75 clubs and a bad student. <laughs> <laughs> president of 75 clubs, barely graduated from high school. Um, but uh, I, I, I got invited back for, like, alumni career day. And I was like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm playing this scene <laughs> from Rushmore. <laughs> so this is Bill Murray addressing the student oh, this body. this is the greatest scene in this movie. You guys have it real easy. I never had it like this where I grew up. But I send my kids here because the fact is you go to one of the best schools in the country, Rushmore. Now, for some of you, it doesn't matter. You were born rich and you're going to stay rich. But here's my advice to the rest of you. (laughs) Take dead aim on the rich boys. Get them in the crosshairs and take them down. (laughs) Just remember, they can buy anything 
but they can't buy backbone. Don't let them forget that. Thank you. Jason Schwartzman's character, the one person clapping the for greatest. that speech. Oh my gosh, I love this movie. I mean, and just before, just so everyone knows, I do know it came out in 1998 for like a week or two, but it's technically a 99 movie. But uh, it is, it's remarkable to me. I think the weirdest thing about Rushmore, I still, I mean, whatever you can think about the Oscars, the fact that Bill Murray uh, did not get an Oscar for that, it's the greatest. I mean, he's done a lot of great work, but that is absolutely one of the most fun performances. You, you can see how much fun he's having. And the weird thing about Rushmore is it just – you grow with that movie. I mean I saw when I was 22, 23 and probably relate a lot more to Max Fisher and now I'm much older than that and I probably relate a little more to Harold Bloom at this point where it's like, yeah, you get a little stuck sometimes in life. I mean I'm not wearing Budweiser trunks and smoking a cigarette at my kid's party but – um, this, I, I can certainly imagine myself just <laughs> running full speed away from the camera. Oh my gosh, it's so great, and it's so. In the the movie is just also it the you know the, the graduate was a big influence on it, um, and it has that timelessness of it. I mean, I really do think Max Fisher is one of those few kind of like sort of rebel teen characters that I don't think is sort of specific to any generation. I mean, if you showed Rushmore to someone who's really young now, they I don't know if they even be able to figure out that it was filmed in the late nineties. There's something very timeless about the way the you know the, the school they use and the music they use it kind of feels like it could have come anytime in the last 30 years or so i i think i'm one of those people who understands and appreciates the things that bother some movie fans about wes anderson's films mm. and personally i don't care about any of them i enjoy all of them his worst movies i still am glad to watch and like i love i love the luggage or whatever it, at his absolute worst. And if I get more than that, it's a miracle. Right. Like, I'm like, wow, I get more than that amazing luggage? Because that <laughs> luggage was awesome. You know what I mean? Like a, like a guy that loves a, you know, a, a great gun showdown at the end of sure, the movie and right. doesn't care about the rest of it, right? Um, Rushmore is interesting to me because more than any of the rest of Wes Anderson's films, um, as much as it is, you know... Uh, like a little chamber drama with like actual curtains opening and closing oh, yeah. for act breaks. Yeah. It is animated by a kind of wild sense of fear and anger. Mm -hmm. I think it's as angry as, I mean, it's, it's so funny because now we think of him very differently than Rushmore and it's, I don't know what's my favorite Wes Anderson movie. I think Fantastic Mr. Fox and Rushmore are tied for one um, because I can watch Fantastic Mr. Fox with my kids. Um, but there's certainly like there is kind of a – Should I not be watching Rushmore with me? My... <laughs> you can watch Rushmore. I, I'll probably watch it with them soon. Um, I think they need to watch the actual uh, Apocalypse Now and stuff before they watch the reenactments. <laughs> <laughs> um, for my kids, at least, they'll want to know the source material. Um, but it's it is there's like a little bit of an anger to it that I think is maybe not in his later works that I think you can only have when you're super young. And this is only his second movie. And he and Wilson were you know they made this great movie Bottle Rocket that no one had seen. I mean, I think those of us who were cared about stuff saw it at the time. But you know they just come off this like very personal movie that had flopped. And you could, I feel like they're pouring everything into this movie of their entire childhood. And it seems very – I mean, it is. It's it's loosely autobiographical. I mean, Max Fisher is sort of an amalgamation of what they were like when they were teenagers in different ways. And again, like who who can relate to this character? I mean, he's just so perfectly – he has all the thing about being a teenager, being a thoughtful teenager where you're like – you think you're ahead of things in some ways and you're really not. You think you figure things out that you actually don't know at all, but you're actually a little bit further ahead than some of their kids. I mean, you know, I, at that age, I would have clapped for that. 
take get the rich kids in your crosshair speech as well. So I could I could relate this movie a lot, and it's it holds up. It's it's got a, a certain magic to it that especially those last couple moments. It's just it's a wonderful film. On the subject of movies that you can show to your kids, right? There was one absolutely beautiful children's film that came out in 1999 that you write about in the book, and that is uh, The Iron Giant, mm. Brad Bird's sort of ill-fated um, children's animated movie. So you look at this movie not just as a wonderful movie, but also as an interesting reflection of the ways that fan culture was changing mm. in 1999 as the internet came to be its locus. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit of the story of how the Iron Giant came to be and how it ended up in the weird, precarious place that it was in when it when it was released. Well, Brad Bird at that point was very well respected. He'd done an Amazing Stories episode that was really well received. He'd done some work on The Simpsons and He'd wandered the Iron Giant for a while, and it's you know it's this sort of Sputnik era tale of this kid who befriends this giant robot, and that's such a dumb logline because it's actually about so much more. But it is really about that too. It's a very sweet movie with a lot of big ideas to it. In a lot of ways, it's like a it's a much more literal uh, kind of baby boomer story. It's mm. ultimately it, it ultimately feels like it could come from 1959 for having been said in 1959. Yeah, that's true. I didn't think about that. That's interesting. Yeah. It's about the it's ultimately about whether this um as as Brad Bird describes it, what if a gun had a soul? Yeah. yeah. So the the robot is a weapon, but he he feels love. And it was a personal move for Brad Bird because he he lost a family member to gun violence in the years before and he got this to Warner Brothers, which had this um, animation division. And by the time they bought the Iron Giant, he got working on it. They were folding the division. So he's got this movie that everyone at the studio seems to really like. But they're like, you know what? The animation business is not quite working for us. So um, he works very hard to get it made. The budget gets cut. And it's just sort of floating there. And he, you know, he told me he was worried that he was starting to get worried that it was never just going to come out. Um, and what happens is... Um, some of the footage winds up being shown to a writer for Ain't It Cool News, which at that point um, was kind of at its apex. For those who don't know, Ain't It Cool News was this movie gossip website that people such as myself read obsessively in the mid to late 90s where it's like, we have a picture of Godzilla's tail from Godzilla. And you'd be like, oh, please refresh this page. Please load image. 100% where I went to find out news about the production of the Mr. Show movie. Oh, my. That's right. They cover I mean, they forgot because he said that giant index of movies. Yeah. So this... This one writer for Ain't It Cool News basically writes – it's not even a review. It's just like this movie is golden. It's sitting there. Uh, you know, Why is this not coming out? And he had been shown like an assembly, like yeah. somebody who was not supposed to show him an assembly. Yeah. It's Drew McWeeny who's a, who still writes about film for a lot of places now. And, and uh, he got to see – it wasn't – yeah, it wasn't the completed movie at all. Um, and at first Brad Bird is sort of frustrated that someone saw this movie. But then I think he read the Ain't It Cool piece that – resulted and it was this glowing like like basically like warner brothers what are you doing and it's a very kind of pivotal moment in how the internet changed sort of fan studio fan art relationship because warner brothers kind of listened i mean there's a little bit of you know i think they maybe would deny that because ain't a cool news champion this film that's why it got finally came out but you know the la times picked up on it and did this big piece that was like there's a movie everyone seems to love matt grading is talking about how much he loves it before it comes out um, and the movie still doesn't 
uh, do well. But it was I think the movie's course changed a lot with sort of the way the fans kind of enthused the enthusiasm the fans had and the way they kind of mounted this sort of mini campaign. Um, which is very common now. I mean, you, you see it on Twitter when a show gets canceled or a movie is possibly in trouble that people start kind of getting, you know, getting the gang together and start really trying to make a noise about it. But I think The Iron Giant was one of the first films that, I don't think the internet saved it or the fans saved it, but I think they altered its trajectory in a very meaningful way. And it's a great movie. It's a wonderful movie. It's very sweet. It's super smart. It feels like it snuck in that year. Um, I, don't think it, I don't think people even really realized till it was out of theaters how special it was. So I have two questions about two big controversial movies of 1999. The first of these is Fight Club. Mm -hmm. By the time Fight Club came out, I was a college freshman. Right. That's the audience for Fight Club. (laughs) So there were two categories of people who went to see Fight Club. One category was people who immediately had a Fight Club poster on their wall. Right, yeah. And redefined their entire lives around the ethos of Fight Club. Yeah. The other, which is way what I was in, were people who were annoyed by those people. Mm, yeah. Um, for that reason, I feel like if I watch Fight Club now, all I would be able to remember is people with Fight Club posters on their wall in 1999 and 2000 and 2001. Um next to their Donnie Darko poster. <laughs> yeah, that, that was definitely the early aughts cult uh, collection there. And uh, I don't think I could even give it a, a fair shot. Oh, really? Yeah. What is it like to watch Fight Club 20-ish years later? You know, it's it, it's so funny because you mentioned the, the fact that it became this college dorm thing. And I really do like Fight Club. And I sometimes feel like if you say, I like Fight Club, you have to give someone a little, little business card that says, I'm not crazy. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not toxic. I just really like anti-capitalism films. Um, I mean, it's a movie that I distinctly remember standing up in the theater on a Friday night in Manhattan seeing with a friend and just really feeling pummeled by it. Um, and I feel like now, you know, it's it, it has a little bit of a weird... Um, sort of reputation now because I do think that it was sort of getting at this kind of male anger that now is basically the entire internet, I think, Um, and this kind of weird sense of entitlement and this kind of anarchic, let's just blow something up to blow something up. But I also think, and and again, I always feel like I have to kind of defend it, but it's like defend myself defending it. But I think it's a very funny movie. And honestly, the stuff that I loved when I saw it was none of the masculinity stuff. I thought that was very interesting. I didn't have those hangups, but I was very into the idea of like corporate advertising is trying to tell you how to live, which is a very just out of college thing to glom onto. And I also I I really loved kind of at that point I was just out of college, so I was like, oh, this movie ends with them blowing up the credit card companies, so we all get our debt erased. I'm very I'm very on board for that, and I think that one element of it makes that movie incredibly timely because you have Fight Club, and then a couple of weeks later you have the riot, you know, the the battle in Seattle. You have sort of this idea of this kind of very marked prolonged protest against capitalism and those movies aren't entirely in dialogue with one of those two events but i do think fight club feels very timely now and i also i do think it's legitimately kind of funny i also find you know sort of weird dark violent stuff funny sometimes um but i you know it has this life now that i definitely could see it being very annoying to go through college during the fight club years the best picture uh, of the year was american beauty uh, the movie that taught us that something sinister is hiding behind those white picket fences. Yes. I worry that if I went back and watched that, even leaving aside the relatively recent revelations about its star's personal life, mm. I wouldn't be able to deal with it. 
it feels like a different kind of reckoning with baby boomer dumb. Yeah. Was it actually interesting and subversive or was it pretend interesting and subversive? I hated it at the time. I And I hated it in a way that was classic early 20-something obnoxious. At, I mean, I remember being at holiday parties that year and just being like, you guys are wrong about this. Uh, and I worked at Entertainment Weekly at the time where almost everyone I knew really loved it. A lot of them have walked back on it. I just was not into the idea of the suburbs being a dark place. I was like, what is this? This is very hammy. And I was really kind of um, dreading rewatching it a lot of times for this book. But there are two things for American Beauty that I really think that people who've not watched it in 20 years should give it another look for. One, it, it is a great looking movie. I mean, Conrad Hall shot it. It's beautiful. A lot of the things are framed in a very interesting way. Um, and I do think it generally, I think what people sort of knocked it at the time when people would say, oh, this is just like a TV movie. It's like, it actually, it's a really good looking film. I also think it was right. I mean, I really think this is a movie about a guy living in the suburbs whose next door neighbor is a, uh, at, at the minimum, a neo-Nazi memorabilia collector and probably much worse. Um, you know, it's about this skeevy middle-aged guy who's leering after young women and no one really knows about it and keeping it a secret in a way. And it does feel more – it feels a little more 2019 than maybe it feels 1999. And I understand, too, that a lot of the baby boomer navel-gazing, you know, I'm in my – I'm a 40s white guy and my life is incomplete. I can see why that is a huge turnoff for people, especially now. Um but I do think there is something in that movie that if you can get past whatever your sort of hangups are about how it was perceived back then and the fact that it won Best Picture in this very remarkable year, which I think has dinged it quite a bit. I mean, I think if you are, you know, any movie that wins Best Picture is held up to greater scrutiny, I think, than especially in a year like that. But I do think there's a lot of interesting things in that film. I really I think the same thing has always the biggest problem. American Beauty is still I don't think it's Kevin Spacey's best performance. I think he's. He's he's doing uh, I think he's doing like uh, like uh, odd couple or he's doing some sort of like weird variation on Jack Lemmon. He he thinks he's doing Save the Tiger or save, and he's doing some other kind of more cutesy buffalo you know sort of goofy Jack Lemmon. It doesn't quite work, but there's a lot of good stuff in that. And hey, you know what? The plastic bag scene everyone makes fun of. That's how teenagers do talk. I mean, I made fun of that scene so much when it came out, but when I looked at it now. I'm like, I probably said something just as dumb at that age and thought it was profound. Um, but I know it's also a hard movie to get people to. Uh, except on some terms. Looking at the list of movies in the book, and you cover some movies that aren't by and about white dudes, mm-hmm. um, uh, movies like The Best Man and The mm-hmm. Wood and, and, and a few others, uh, The Virgin Suicides. It is really crazy to take a look at a list of dozens of movies and realized as a white dude how not transparent it was, at least to me at the time, that all of them <laughs> are white dude movies by by and about yeah. white dudes. There's a lot of middle white guy malaise in that in that year. Yeah. I mean I, I would I would also we we talked about the the Matrix, which it was uh directed by uh two trans women. Yeah. But were at, at the very least, if if not identifying as dudes at the time, at least publicly identifying sure, as yeah. dudes at the time, and it's a real slap in the face because you think of you think of 1999. I think of 1999 because of my age as relatively recently, hmm. and that makes me remember. Oh, right, 2019 is also pretty bad in this department. Yes, yeah, <laughs> no, it hasn't. I mean, you know, it has not been. It has not been addressed, and. When you look at something like 
you know, The Best Man or um, The Wood, which was written and directed by Rick Famuyiwa. And those are both two really great movies, but they were, you know, they were both uh, a little bit of a struggle to get made and, and they shouldn't have been. I mean, these are, they were relatively really big hits. And uh, when you look at sort of the landscape of directors who were dominating the late 90s, it's almost exclusively white guys in the studios. Not entirely, but it's like it's white guys writing them. It's white guys directing them. And they are. I mean, Fight Club, Office Space, you know, American Beauty. These are very, you know, uh, Bill Murray and Rushmore. I mean, these are like anguished uh, middle-aged dudes. And I wonder now, I would love to talk to someone who's much younger, who watching these movies for the first time and seeing how much that stands out. And it's, it certainly stands out to me. It's like, boy, this was not... Um, we have, and also, it's like, boy, we really have not fixed this much in the last twenty years. There's one movie that came out in 1999 that was acclaimed then, is acclaimed now, and it seems like almost everybody agreed that it was great, um, although it wasn't a monster hit or anything. And that was being John Malkovich. Hi, do you know that I don't even know your name or where you work? Yeah. Um, okay, how about this? If I can guess your name in three tries, you have to come have a drink with me tonight. Why not? Okay. You look like a... Maxine? Uh, yeah. Who told you? Nobody told me. That just came out. Don't you think that's... Isn't that odd? So where, where do you live and stuff? I am dubious. But I don't Welsh. Okay, meet me at the Stuck Pig. Seven o'clock. It's amazing. Every part of that movie becoming a real movie. Yeah. And then every part of it working. Yeah. Seems bonkers. It's very. I mean, I really do think that the the one and two of that year are election of being John Malkovich, and depending what day, uh, I could flip those two. It's just does any. I mean, it really. It feels like it was made ten minutes ten minutes from now. It's just every idea in that movie feels so of our time and of the last twenty years. The idea of trying to hijack someone's identity, which you know is like now a terrifying reality for people who are online. The idea of not being comfortable in the, in the body to which you were born, which is a really interesting part of that film, and just the way we view celebrities and the way we sort of want to take a part of their life and think we sort of casually know them. It's also – it is such a funny movie. And it's so funny to me that this was like – it wasn't a hit, but like my parents saw it. It's like this was kind of a mainstream art house movie that got multiple Oscar nominations. And it's like I don't – of all the movies that uh, – you know, there's a lot of like would this movie get made now game on the internet for all these movies. And I do think Malkovich is the one – where it's like, whoa, 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 wait. You just have to leave the room. If you started pitching me this movie, you should just leave right now, sir, because what are you telling me about a, a, you can teleport into John Malkovich's head? It's like, can we maybe get Zac Efron's head? It's like, you could never possibly get this movie made today. You hit on something that is, I think, meaningful to me about many of these movies. And it is that, with a few exceptions, um, The Matrix, for example... A lot of these movies are funny. Yeah. And it feels like it's been a long time 
since people have had any kind of opportunity to make funny movies that are good. Hmm. Um, like there are, there have been funny movies that are good since then, and yeah. there have been a lot of movies that are great at being funny, and I'm happy with that. I love funny movies. Yeah. But it does feel like a unique time in that so many of these movies are movies made for the purposes of making a great film as capital A art that also have a lot of funny in them. And they're very warm, too, if they're not funny. I mean, I think Boys Don't Cry, which is a really great movie, I think that the love story in that is remarkably moving. Um, and I think you could have made that very chilly and different, I don't, you know, sort of an, a tougher movie to watch. But I don't know what it is. Maybe that was sort of, I mean, I, you know, you have the sphere of Y2K. Y2K doesn't happen, but we do get Bush Gore, and then we have 9-11, and then we have Afghanistan and Iraq. And maybe you can't kind of um, have fun with these ideas quite so much. Maybe that's moved more toward television. But the fact these movies were funny is kind of a risk. I mean, like Three Kings, it's like, can you imagine if you are if you are a Warner Brothers exec who was already against this movie and you're like watching the footage and going, wait, we're having a scene where a guy gets his head almost blown off and it's kind of funny. We can't do that. I mean, and you definitely couldn't do that now. Um, I mean, maybe that was just uh, I, I think that was also you had these filmmakers are all very darkly funny. I mean, people like Fincher and Soderbergh and Charlie Kaufman are obviously these these are people who are very much know how to mix drama and comedy in a way where you kind of are sort of um Un- uneasy with which which way it's heading, um, which is very satisfying. Brian, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, it was great to, yeah, get it was to talk to you about all these cool movies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Brian Raftery, best movie year ever: How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen, is out now in bookstores. It's a fun read. Tons of great interviews. So many great movies. We only covered a few of them here. Uh, I would say maybe my favorite is The Limey. Hard to say. Rushmore came out that year, too. Uh, The Limey is this Steven Soderbergh crime movie about a British guy who goes to L.A. to investigate his daughter's death. Has Luis Guzman and Peter Fonda. Um, It's beautiful and so fun. One of my favorite movies ever. Anyway, uh, so a lot of great stuff about that movie and lots of other great movies in Best Movie Year Ever. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where this week they were shooting a huge prestige cable television drama. And we got to see not only a giant helicopter landing platform, but America's hyphiest football running back. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We got help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by DJ W, the great Dan Wally. Our thanks to him for giving us that music. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's by the band The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And before you go, I've been making this show for almost two decades. That means literally hundreds of interviews, and you can check them all out on our website at MaximumFun.org. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You can hear lots of episodes on those platforms as well. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 